Hey, Southern Hills, I'm glad to have an opportunity of speaking to you today from Luke chapter number three, verses 23, uh, all the way to verse 38. Now, you might be saying, this seems like a weird format. It reminds me of 2020. That's because we had a little bit of technical difficulties in recording the sermon on Sunday. Not a problem because we've got it right here for you. And I just know some of you are stuck at home and some of you don't have the opportunity of being here this last Sunday and you don't want to miss out on this particular passage. So I'm thankful for our tech team because they're like, no problem, we can get it done. And today we're going to get Luke chapter 3 right into your hands with a very important sermon in the midst of the series called The Wonder Years, Episodes in His Backstory. For those who are new and you're just jumping in, or maybe you found this on the middle of YouTube and you search genealogies of Jesus or Luke chapter 3, let me explain where we're at. We're studying the early portions of the Gospel of Luke. Luke's perspective on the story of Jesus. And the early portion of Luke, Luke really wants us to understand before Jesus presents himself as the Messiah to the world, some episodes of his backstory that explain who he is. And so he begins back in chapter two by talking about Jesus as a baby, and then he continues about Jesus as a teenager, and then he talks about Jesus's crazy cousin. Uh, and then he continues by explaining his background, like his genealogy, where he came from, his lineage. And, and next week, we're gonna be talking about Satan and his battle with Satan, and then finally his hometown. All of this is in preparation to present Jesus as the Messiah to the nation of Israel and the rest of the world. So right now you find yourself in the midst of a sermon series entitled The Wonder Years, Episodes and His Backstory. Today's sermon we've called Broken Family. Now you're going to see why as we walk through the passage, because if Jesus came from anything, he came from a broken family. With that being said, I, I, have, to, I have to talk about chicken wings a little bit. I don't know if you like chicken wings. I love chicken wings. I love to go during college football season to Buffalo Wild Wings with my entire clan and just sit there and eat as many chicken wings as I possibly can. Now, here's the problem that I've come across. There are a lot of people who just simply don't know how to properly eat chicken wings. In fact, some people are, have given up on eating chicken wings. They've gone to boneless chicken wings, and boneless chicken wings aren't even chicken wings. They're chicken McNuggets for adults. And so for those of you who have never really understood properly how to eat chicken wings, this is your opportunity to learn from the master. I've eaten literally hundreds of them. I watch my children as they eat these chicken wings. I'll give them to my little girls. Now they're teenage girls, and they grab one of these you know, the little drumsticks or what they call flats with the two bones and the meat in the middle. And they'll grab one and they'll just pick at it a little bit. And they'll put it down. I'll pick at it a little bit of another one. I'll put it down. And I look across the table and I know I spent good money on these chicken wings. And I think, look at all the meat on the bones. And they say, I can't get it. And I'll say, you suck it off a little bit more. This is a problem. Well, sometimes people think, well, maybe chicken wings are just no good. No, maybe the problem is these people don't know how to eat chicken wings. I find that genealogies are very similar in the Bible to chicken wings. There's a lot of meat there. You just have to know how to consume it. There's a lot deep in the genealogies, not just in the New Testament, but throughout the entire scripture. You just have to know how to go for the meat. And so today from Luke chapter two, as well as a brief respite in Matthew chapter 1, we're going to talk about the genealogies of Jesus and how there's so much to learn and pull out if you know what you're looking for. I mean, genealogies themselves can be like that. They can be 
frustrating, yes, but they can also be extremely fascinating. Um, for example, go look at this, this uh, genealogical chart of famous people today. A lot of people don't know this, but this is true. Go ahead and look it up. You can Google it once you're done watching the sermon. Madonna. Did you know Madonna is related to Kate Middleton, who is related to Ellen DeGeneres? Did you know Madonna related to Mark Wahlberg, who's related to whoever Jenny McCarthy is and, and uh, Melissa McCarthy? Or, or Don, Madonna and Celine Dion, Guy Ritchie and all of these. This is, this is, the, this is a family, you know, maybe by multiple generations or multiple cousin links. But they're related. Fascinating, is it? Not only can genealogies be fascinating, they can also be entertaining. I mean, look at some of these relations of popular culture individuals that you may never even realized. Did you know, some of you are going to love this because you're very political, did you know George W. Bush is related to Benedict Arnold? You say, oh, I knew it. Well, that's maybe fascinating, but he's also related to John Kerry. I thought, I had no idea that ninth cousins, John Kerry and George W. Bush, and they're both related to Mitt Romney, who are both related to Sarah Palin, who are both related to FDR and Princess Diana. Well, I mean, this is insanity. Did you know Robert Patterson, the new Batman, is related to Dracula? Who knew? Well, now you do. And some of you have stopped watching the sermon, and now you're Googling. You say they can be fascinating, they can be frustrating, they can be entertaining, but genealogies can also show and demonstrate power structure. And that's what happens with a royal lineage, like the one you see here. Queen Elizabeth, obviously coming from Queen George, who has all of these descendants, and it's to determine who the next king is. In a similar way, when we get to Luke chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 1, the genealogies are attempting to let us know who this man is and why he has a right to be trusted. There are two primary things that you can learn from the genealogies, just two. We're going to share them in this brief sermon, and then we're going to get into the text. The two primary things you can learn from this sermon about Jesus' genealogy, number one, his pedigree establishes his dynasty. His pedigree establishes his dynasty. You say, what do you mean his pedigree establishes his dynasty? The whole point, the primary point of the genealogy in Matthew and Luke is this. It's a theological point, and that is you can trust Jesus because his lineage proves his right to be king, his right to be God, his right to be Savior, his right to be Messiah. We see all of it in the genealogies, and we can do so just by pointing out a few standouts in Luke chapter number three. For example, if you look at Luke chapter three, and I'm not sure if you have a Bible there, I'd suggest you pause and go grab a Bible and look at this. It says in Luke chapter three in verse 31, for example, the son of Melia, the son of Menon, the son of Matthiah, the son of Nathan. See, this is the problem with genealogies, right? The son of this person, the son of that person. I don't know about you, if you're a Bible student like I am, sometimes you're reading through the Bible and you get to a verse like verse 23. Now Jesus himself began to minister at the age of 30 years old. Uh, being, as he was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathetai, the son of Levi. Skim, 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 skim. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned. If you're a Bible student for any amount of time, I'm sure you've skimmed through the genealogies like I have. But again, when you point out several of the most important aspects of genealogy, it's going to blow your mind. And one of the ones that come up as very important is when you arrive in verse 31, the son of Matthiah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, stop. The son of David, stop. David, who was David? Well, David was that little boy who killed the giant. 
The little boy who killed the giant, Goliath, grows up to be king, king of Israel, and not just any king, the greatest king that Israel had ever known. In fact, every king that comes after David is compared to David. He was not as good as his father David, or he was like his father David. He was the greatest king of all of Israel's history, but not just because he was a great warrior, not because he was just the guy who killed the giant, but he was the greatest king because of what God promised him. You see, there was a promise that God gave David. We call it, theologically, the Davidic covenant. And in this passage, Jesus' life is linked to that of King David, so that you see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Now, what is a covenant? A covenant is like a contract and a promise all rolled into the same thing. A legal contract and a promise between two individuals who love each other all linked together. And God promised King David a very specific promise. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter number 7. And it says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, this is God talking to the king, when you die one day and your soul is resting with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. I promise I'm going to set up your lineage, those who come from you, and who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build his house in my name, that's referring to David's son Solomon, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Coming from David through Solomon is going to come a special king who will sit on the throne, not for a hundred years and not for a thousand years, but forever. Here's the thing you've got to remember about God. God cannot lie. And when he makes a promise, when he makes a covenant, he will fulfill that covenant. I don't know what you're going through right now. And you read through the promises of the Bible and you wonder, is God going to fulfill his promises to me? Hear this, my friend. God always fulfills his promises, and he does so with David. And so when Jesus Christ is born, it needs to be mentioned multiple times, this is the son of David. And so we see in this lineage, number one, his link to David, the Davidic covenant. But David isn't the only person mentioned here. If you skip down to verse 34, it says he's the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Stop. Son of Abraham, why is that important? Well, because David's not the only one who received a covenant from God. There's the Davidic covenant, promise to be king. Then there's the Abrahamic covenant, the promise to be Messiah. Jesus Christ is not only linked to David to prove he's the rightful king, he's linked to Abraham to prove that he's the rightful Messiah, the Savior of Israel. Well, there are many promises that God gives Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, for example, God says, you're going to be a blessing to all nations, and from you will be one person who blesses everyone. And he reiterates this covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, in Genesis chapter 17. Look at what it says on the screen. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. God promises Abraham, I promise to send from your descendants the one who will save the world to be the Messiah of your family. And that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So there's a link between Jesus and David, proving he has a right to the throne. A link between Jesus and Abraham, proving he has the right to the Messiahship of Israel. And the link now between Jesus and Adam. 
If you skip all the way down to verse 38, you see he is the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the link to the first Adam, Jesus, the son of Adam. Not only establishing his humanity, but establishing his that he is not just king and Messiah, but establishing that he is Savior. Not just the Messiah of the Jews, the Savior of the world, as promised in what we call, as theologians, the Proto-Evangelion. You say, oh, that's a big word. I don't know. What does that mean? Pro- Let me break it down. Proto-Evangelion. Proto, first. The first of. Evangelium. What does that sound like? Evangelium. Evangel- evangelical. Evangelism. Gospel. The first mention of the gospel in all of the Bible came to Adam and Eve after they sinned. And God came to Adam and Eve after they sinned and said, you've sinned because you've sinned. Cursed is the ground for your sake. And Adam, you're going to sweat and labor for food the rest of your life. And cursed are you, Eve, and you're going to have to bring forth children in pain and labor. And cursed is the snake who will slither on the ground and eat dust. And then he says, God's going to bless them. He promises that God himself will send a savior to save mankind, all the daughters of Eve and all the sons of Adam. It's found in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And I will put enmity, God says, to the snake. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He, the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head, serpent, and you, serpent, will bruise the head, uh, you will bruise the heel of the one who will come to save mankind. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did. When Jesus Christ came and spread out his arms upon the cross, he died to pay for the sins of of mankind. When he died, he crushed the head of the serpent. But as he crushed the head of the serpent through his death, Jesus Christ also was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace came upon him, and with his stripes we were healed. Why does Luke, in his genealogy, want us to see the connection between Jesus and Adam? Because he's telling us this is the promised fulfillment of the covenant that God gave to Adam so many years before. So we see this link to the kingship, this link to the messiahship, this link to the savior of the world. And lastly, we see in verse 38, he is not only the son of Adam, he's the son of God, the son of God. His link to Adam shows his humanity and his ability to save mankind as the second Adam. But his link to God shows his divinity and links him to the divine himself. And so therefore has the ability to not only die for the sins of mankind, but to rise from the grave, securing our salvation. The whole purpose, the primary theological purpose of the genealogies, is to tell the reader, hey, 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 you can trust this guy. You can trust him. Have you seen the prices of cars lately? The older I get, I I seem like I'm becoming quite an old man. I can remember buying a stick of gum for 20 cents. I remember when chocolate was only 50 cents a bar, you know. And I can remember when used cars you could get <laughs> for, for less than $20,000. My, my daughter, Savannah, is uh, just about to turn 16 as of the recording of this sermon. 
And as she is, my family's in a situation where we're like, we're looking for a used car, trying to find a used car. And everywhere we look, I mean, it's getting pretty expensive. That's a problem. Not only is it expensive to buy a used car, when it comes to like how to find the right car, to negotiate the right price, and to, uh, and to know if the car works, this is problematic for a guy like me. Hey, here's the thing. I know what I do, I do very well but there are a lot of things I don't do and there's a lot of things I don't do well. And so when I went to go buy a car with a, uh, for my daughter, I called up my friend, his name is Steven Livingston. He's a good guy, grew up together here in Las Vegas. He was younger than me and I found out that Steve, I didn't know this, like has an incredible ability with cars. Like he knows everything about them. He's a mechanic, he knows how to fix them, he knows what's right with them, he knows what's wrong with them. He's also an incredible negotiator. And so a lot of my friends have gone to Steven and said, hey, man, can you help me go get a car? <laughs> so that's what I did with them. I said, hey, Steve, I'm going to go down. I'm trying to find my, my, my daughter a very specific kind of car. Now, when I say this car, some of you are going to hate the car. Some of you are going to try to email me, say, don't, pa don't, Pastor, don't buy that car. That's a terrible car. And I want to be really clear with you. When you get that email, when I, you send that email, I'm going to just delete it because I don't care what your opinion is about the car. Here's why. She's eight, since she was eight years old, all she's ever wanted was a Volkswagen Beetle. That's right, a bug, a slug bug. Actually, the newer kind. They call them a hug bug, I guess. Anyway, this is what she wants more than anything. So I'm looking for one, and I called Steve, and I said, I'm looking for a slug bug. And he said, hey, man, have you known they're bad? I said, yeah, I don't care. That's what they want, so I'm going to get it for her. And so we finally found at ABC Hyundai, we found a, a, a one that we, we wanted to find, we wanted to get. So we arrive at the location, we pull in, he pulls in, and before we go inside to talk to the dealership, I look at Stephen and I said, Stephen, now Stephen, you have to understand, it's a big guy. And if, you've ne if we've never met in person, you have to understand I'm not as big. And so I looked at Stephen, I put my hands on his shoulders. I looked up at him, I said, Stephen, when we go in there, I need you to help me. He said, okay, I'll just follow your lead. Whatever you want is what I want. I said, no, no, you have to understand, Stephen. There is no way possible when we go inside of here that I know what I'm doing. So what I want you to do is I want to check out the car. I want you to see if it runs, and I want you to do the full negotiation. And he said, you want me to handle it? I said, I'm just going to be your silent partner, and at the very end, I'll sign the paperwork. That's how we're going to do it. He said, okay. I said, do you know why? Because I don't know what I'm doing. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Come on, Josh, be your own man. Get in there and take control. You can negotiate. You're the guy. You can look at the car. No. See, whenever it comes to looking at the car, number one, you need somebody who knows what the catalytic converter is. You need somebody who knows what the the carbon dioxide emitter is. You need to know the person who can look and say, you need four wheels, not three. See, I know very little about cars and I need the right person to go in with me. And so that's exactly what he did. I walked in, I said nothing, and he took control of the whole situation. Why? Here's why, a few things. Because I don't trust a lot of things. I've got trust issues. I don't trust the dealership. Not because dealerships are bad and not because car dealers are bad. It's because car dealers and car dealerships are out for themselves primarily. They want, they're on their team. I'm on my team. They're trying to get the best deal for them. I need to get the best deal for me. And I don't play good. So I don't trust the car dealerships. I don't trust the car. It's going to break down. I don't trust me to do the negotiating. So what do I do? What do I do? Here's what I do. I find somebody that is trustworthy. And instead of me trying to take care of the situation myself, 
I find somebody who can do for me what I cannot do for myself. I know what I can do and I know what I can't do. And I cannot get the best deal on a car that actually works without having major problems months from now. So I grab Steve and I say, can you help me? Why the genealogies? Here's why. Because you have something far more important to deal with than just a used car. You have an eternal soul. Have you lived long enough to realize that your body is not you? That there's a real person living inside of you and one day mortality is going to grasp your life and you will die and your soul will go on living somewhere forever? My question is very simple. Who to whom do you trust your soul? What's going to happen to you once you die? Where is it going to go? Some people trust themselves. I don't know, but whatever it is, I'll figure it out. Man, you must be a far better person than me because I don't know what to do with my soul. I feel like I'm going to lose it if I'm not careful. Some of you trust your, um, your, your, your soul to a corporation. Maybe the corporation will treat you well. We call them religions, right? And, and so the Catholic religion, that's going to, you just give your soul over to them because they're perfect, they're good, they've never had any scandals or problems. Give your soul to them and maybe your soul will be okay. Or maybe it's the Buddhist religion or the Islamic religion or the Baptist religion. That one definitely is going to absolutely save your soul. And so you've, instead of dealt, dealing with your own soul, man, you've entrusted it to some kind of a big religion, corporation. You say, well, who do you trust your soul with? There's only one person I trust my soul with. That's Jesus Christ. See, years ago, I, I didn't put my hands on his shoulders. He put his hands on mine. And I looked up to him in need and I said, I cannot save myself. I know I sin. I don't trust myself to not sin. I don't trust myself to get into heaven. I'm asking you, will you please save me? And one day when I die and I stand before God, God's going to look at me and say, why should I let you into heaven? I'm going to say nothing. I'm just going to be like, I'm with him. I'm, I'm, with, I'm, with, I'm going to let him do all the talking. The reason the writers of the Bible give us the genealogies is so that we can say, I think I trust him. He's the rightful heir to the throne. He's the rightful Messiah of the Jews. He's the Savior of the world. He's the Son of God. And so, number one, reason is theological. His pedigree establishes his dynasty. Number two, number two, the second lesson, which is a briefer one, your family tree doesn't determine your destiny. The first truth that I really love about studying the genealogies of Jesus is that his pedigree establishes his dynasty. The second lesson is your family tree, it doesn't determine your destiny. The reason this is so important is because some of us think that we come from such a messed up background that there's no way possible ever, there's no way that my life is going to turn around. I am destined to be a screw up. I'm destined to mess up my life. I'm destined to be like my father or my grandfather before me, my mother or my grandmother. And the answer is your family tree doesn't determine your destiny. You say, how do you know? Look at the genealogies of Jesus. When you look at the genealogies of Jesus, you realize how messed up was his genealogy. 
I mean, I mean, look at it from Matthew chapter 1. Now, just, I'm going to just throw out a few names, not all the names. These people were messed up people. Look what it says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac. Stop. Abraham? <laughs> yes, God made Abraham a promise, but do you know who Abraham was? This is the guy who pimped out his wife twice. Say, pimped out his wife? Yes, he pimped out. He said, you shouldn't say such things. You should read the Bible. There's some really messed up stuff in there. In fact, my daughter, she's, like I said, almost 16 years old. She's been reading through the Bible for the very first time in the New Living Translation. And as she does, there's a lot of things that are, uh, she sees for the first time. Uh, recently, she sent me all sorts of questions and screenshots of, Dad, what's going on here with Lot and his daughters? Dad, who is Onan and what is this all about? And it's, I always say the same thing. Ask your mother. This is the best thing to do in these scenarios. You got to read this book. There's a lot of weird stuff. And one of the weird things is the heroes of the Bible are not really heroes. They're a bunch of screwed up people who also need saving by God and his son, Jesus Christ. Abraham's in here. Jacob's in here. Jacob's the guy who tricks his own brother into giving him his inheritance. Tamar is in here. In this genealogy, there's five women specifically mentioned, every single one of them a scandalous story. You go down, you see Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute in the lineage of Jesus. Ruth is there. Ruth wasn't even an Israelite. Ruth was a Moabitess outside of the family of Israel. It's scandalous that she's even in the book. Solomon is in here. David, David, okay, David was a guy who had adultery with his, one of his best friend's wives, and then to cover it up, had his friend murdered. This is one of the, this is one of the heroes in David's family, in Jesus' family. Solomon, I mean Solomon, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, a thousand women, a thousand women. How in the world do you even keep track? And the list goes on and on and on. This is the family of Jesus. You say, man, I'll never be able to live out my family's heritage and lineage, and, and there's no way that I'm going to be different from the rest of my family. This is just who I am because this is who I came from. And Jesus says, your family tree does not determine your destiny. Easy for you to say, Pastor Josh. I mean, your family is just like, your family's perfect. Can I tell you? My family history is not so pristine. It's not so perfect. You say, I thought your dad was a pastor, Josh. I, I thought your dad, he is. He's a, he's a very good man, follower of Jesus. And your older brother, Josh, isn't your older brother a pastor too? He is. I mean, yeah, you got me to rights. My brother-in-law is a pastor too. I mean, our family does have a lot of preachers and we like to keep it in the family business, right? But those stories are mere glimpses of God's grace in a family lineage filled with pain, heartache, sin, and destruction. My, my grandparents, for example. You know my grandfather, how my grandfather and grandmother moved to Las Vegas in the first place? I'll tell you how. My grandfather was a Middle Eastern immigrant who had nothing, and he moved from Lebanon to New York City through Ellis Island, the whole thing. And when he arrived, um, he met a woman on a bus in New York in 1940s and thought she was beautiful. And he went to talk to her. Guy, I guess, had a great pickup line, convinced her to start dating him. The problem was she was married and had children. 
And over the next few weeks, he actually convinced this woman to run away from her husband and children and move to the opposite side of the country in Las Vegas and get married to him. Now, thankfully, she brought her children with him. Wait a second, Pastor Josh, are you telling me your whole family moved to Las Vegas just because of an adulterous relationship? That's exactly how my family got to this city. It wasn't like they were out there generations ago on their knees before God. Dear God, where's the most sinful place we could go? They escaped here so that they could continue in sin. And then by God's grace, God led them to a church where they got saved. Maybe that's the way your family started. See, my family's history is not pristine. I don't, don't you, Pastor Josh, have a cousin who, who runs a ministry for fatherless children? Yes, I do. I also have a first cousin who walked the streets of Las Vegas as a prostitute for over a decade. First cousin, not somebody I heard about, my first cousin. I have two uncles who lived as homeless men first uncles. My dad's brother Gary and my dad's brother Ricky lived as homeless men, one in Los Angeles, one here in Las Vegas, for years, by choice, by choice, addicted to everything you could. I had an uncle for years who owned a pornography shop in a seedy part of Las Vegas that I could take you to. That's my family. The reason this is so important is because some of us have been lied to by the enemy and you've been told that your family tree does determine your destiny. You can't get out because that's who you are. And I love the genealogies of Jesus because the genealogies of Jesus say no, no, no. Regardless of your family tree, you can see God do great things in your life and in this world. The genealogies of Jesus Christ incredibly important to see. One theological point. Yep, it is his pedigree that establishes his dynasty. One practical point. Your family tree does not determine your destiny. Luke is not done. He has two more episodes before he wraps up this season of Jesus's life. Next week, we get to the next episode where he wants you to see that Jesus, this one who grew up in front of us, he can go toe-to-toe with the devil himself, serp- the serpent, Satan in, in the flesh next week as we arrive at a sermon entitled, Not Today, Satan, from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. I look forward to seeing you in church.